This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's go. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, ah, my culinary comrades and financial foodies, welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that is comforting as a bowl of pasta al dente, yet as exhilarating as a dash of chili in your chocolate. I'm here with my equity buddy, Ren, and as always, is this the first one where he's not going to get it? So, as always, Bryce gets his introduction translated into a character by JPT, and we, as the audience of his one-man show, uh, get to guess who it is. The thing is, it could be any... Chef, yes, but I'm gonna guess by the inflection that you put on your voice yes. that you're Nigella Lawson. Ah, very well done, <laughs> <laughs> undefeated. <laughs> or maybe I'm just really good at this as well. You're a good actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. You definitely play a financial expert on a podcast, so you've had some practice. <laughs> True, <laughs> very funny. Anyway, Ren, we have a massive show today. Plenty to get through. We've got your continued mentorship with Andrew Page from strawman.com. We're going to discuss the big tech breakup and what's going on in the antitrust landscape at the moment and whether or not we should be worried. As investors in Google and uh, Amazon. as big tech investors. But to start with news and portfolio, let's get cracking. Yeah, well, I mean, you say let's get cracking, but I think you need to get cracking because stop the presses, uh, drop everything. Bryce has had one of the most momentous moments in a young Australian's life. Momentous moments. Yes, I did mean to say that. that um, you know, there's some things that Australians look at as like a mark of, you know, taking the next step. Finishing school. Um, yes. Getting your first job. Getting married. Having a kid, and no, this isn't Bryce's uh, pregnancy announcement. This is not gender reveal. But above (laughs) all of them, every young Australian dreams of one thing, and that is owning a home. Owning a home, yes. Getting into the most uh, leveraged, undiversified (laughs) investment you will ever make in your life. Hopefully investment, hopefully far out. (laughs) And this week, you have joined the generations of Australians that have tied up all of their net wealth in a bit of land. Yes, that's right, Ren. I bought a house. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a long wind up. I bought a house. <laughs> it has been an emotionally charged week, but mm. it's very exciting. Not a lot of work done this week. Not a lot of work done this week. Hard to concentrate. But after, after maybe 12 months of looking, uh, multiple pre-approval renewals, we were lucky enough to find a place and and secure it. So you're right. So we how are, much did you pay? <laughs> not disclosing. <laughs> the interesting thing though, Ren, is that now I'm in a whole new world of blocking out the noise because while the last number of years I've been freely talking about impact of interest rates, macroeconomic conditions, housing crisis, etc., what I have found very interesting is without even having settled on the place and just having signed, there is already a bias towards the headlines that are coming yeah, through. Yeah, you, you've become a you've become a boomer now. <laughs> yeah. Like in in one move, all <laughs> one of swoop. All of your, <laughs> your attitude like has changed. All of a sudden it's no longer, you know, asking for uh, the government to change housing policy and the tax treatment of housing or maybe hoping for house prices to fall. Now it's just keep the pyramid scheme going. <laughs> it's, um, it's a new emotional, I guess, thing that I'm going to have to figure out just like I did with stocks. But I think what is important to everyone listening is I'm not, I'm not going to become a property man. I'm still very much into stocks and have not leveraged myself to the point where I can't do anything in the stock market. Mm. That that was very important to Harriet and I. So the stock market goes on. Yes, yeah. I, it was funny. I forwarded you an email the day after you bought. I got an email from a non-Australian email that I sign up to. I think the guy's based in Singapore, but he writes about a lot of Asian stocks. The subject of the email, Australia's coming housing bust. <laughs> and I saw you put it in the notes and I've written, what, not what I want to see. <laughs> And I think this is my point. Like it's a whole new world of trying to figure out and block out the no- like it is what it is now, and there's no turning back. So hopefully, it uh, it turns out well. But well, I mean, it was interesting because it's a story that we've heard over and over again in Australia. And the partic- housing bust. Yeah, particularly yeah. doing financial content in Australia. It was all of the the hallmarks of you know the massive run up in prices, the government policies that have supported it, first home buyers coming in in two thousand, the tax treatment with negative gearing and all that stuff. Like, we'll publish a lot of the information on our Instagram. Um, there's a whole bunch of charts and stuff which I'm not going to try and explain in audio format. Um, one stat that stood out to me: two million investors, uh, property investors in Australia, uh, 1.3 million of them negatively gear. Which I was surprised. I would have thought more people were positively geared than that. But they're investors, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people can afford houses if you can't negatively gear in the investment space. Yeah. 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 Which that's is the problem. That's because housing <laughs> yeah. has become so unaffordable. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the the classic sign of housing stress is median price to median income. And um in in Australia it's like eight and a bit. In Sydney it's like thirteen and a bit. And I think like housing stress is anything above three or four. So they write about that. Another stat, Australia's housing market is worth roughly 400% of GDP, which is just below Japan's 1989 peak of 500%, uh, which is similar to China's level today. Sorry, Japan's property peak? Yeah, well, if anyone knows what happened in Japan in the 80s and then post the bubble in 89, and if you don't know, we wrote a book that spoke about it, Don't Stress, Just Invest. But yeah, Japan had a massive run up and then they had like a lost decade after that. Mm. The market has only just sort of got back to where it was. Mm. 
so obviously like the whole narrative of how expensive Australian housing is been told. Not a surprise to anyone here. According to Moody's, the delinquency rate, so um, people falling behind on their mortgages, not paying their mortgages, has ticked up slightly, I think up a bit less than 1%. So, which doesn't sound huge. But to what? Does, does it say? Doesn't say. Right. And then, you know, like the number of new listings, we got data from CoreLogic recently that spoke about the number of um, say, short-term sales um, and that were selling for, being listed for less than they sold for like less than three years ago. So, there's a few like little... Little red flags, but Bryce, I don't want to rain on your parade. <laughs> yeah, look, as I said, it's done now. So it is what it is. You just hope that you set yourself up in a way that if things do transpire for the negative, you're still going to be sort of cash flow okay and can and can support that. And I mean, like the thing is, if you're thinking about this as sort of a 10 to 15 year time horizon, like the balance of probabilities not investment advice but like you're gonna do okay yeah touch wood so your does this change your because you're in the market no everything i just said about uh quote the australia's coming housing bus like i still want to yes i want to get in and like for me my thinking is i want to buy something where even if we see another rate hiking cycle you know jp morgan's ceo jamie diamond came out and said his worst case scenario is eight percent and that's in the US, but like what happens if rates get to 7 or 8%? Can I afford it? As long as I can afford it, I still want to buy. And whatever happens in the short term with prices, I'm pretty confident that one, I'm building equity rather than paying rent. And two, over the long term, I'll be okay. Preach. Housing. <laughs> Housing. Let's get Next, to stocks. Let's get into the stocks. <laughs> Ren, something interesting. Seen pop up a couple of times over the last week. Comes off the back of the start of the trial of Sam Bankman Freed, the former or kind of founder of FTX, one of the largest crypto exchanges. Uh, he's now on trial for multiple charges, many of which, if they, he gets done, he'll be in jail for life, essentially, mm. like a long time. Now, debate around whether or not he knew about it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he definitely knew. Yeah. I mean, Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball and The Big Short, he, he wrote a book on Sam Bankman-Fried and came out and basically defended him and said, if everything hadn't collapsed, no one would have thought he did anything wrong. Yeah, that's because it, it'd still be hidden. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think like I saying... think he I think his argument was like people were calling it a pyramid scheme, but it wasn't a pyramid scheme. There was a real underlying business, but it's just that when there was a run on that business, it didn't work. But I still think fundamentally what they were doing was taking money from customers for their own benefit. I'm not defending. Uh, yeah. it. I'm just I'm just <laughs> providing context. Sure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what's interesting is I didn't know about this. You may have heard of it, but people are investing in claims on FTX. And by that, what I mean is when it went bankrupt, the creditors come in and start liquidating the assets. And there's a, a capital structure for who gets to claim the rights to, to those assets. And usually it's the debtors at the top and then it flows down to equity and, and whatnot. And at the moment, you can buy claims on FTX assets for like cents on the dollar. I think at the current rate, it's kind of like you can buy claims for about 25 cents on the dollar with some investors saying that they believe the assets are more likely to be valued around 50 or 60 cents on the dollar. So what they're saying is by buying it at 25 cents, when it comes to be liquidated, they're going to be on, in the capital structure that then gets a return of 50 or 60 cents on the dollar. Super hard to do as retail investors, apparently. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out for the life of me how to do it, but a very high profile, high sophisticated investors doing that. But I just thought it was 
I thought it was interesting. I, I hadn't come across this before. So if you're interested in this whole world of like distressed debt investing, because that's essentially what it is. You're buying at a different point in the capital structure and hoping to make a return. Caesar's Palace Coup. I think that's what the book's called. Or it, it, the book about the Caesar's Palace bankruptcy and debt restructuring and everything. Fascinating. One of the best investment books I've read recently because it just opened my eyes to this whole world. Long story short, and I won't ruin it all, but Caesar's Palace, the casino giant, goes into bankruptcy and then all of these distressed debt investors, the biggest and baddest funds in the world, you know, like Apollo and Oak Tree and like Appaloosa, all of these names that you know just come in and buy in at different points in the capital structure and then just like lawyers at 10 paces and they're all fighting over like how the scraps of this business get distributed. Fascinating. And I think that's kind of similar here. Yeah, yeah, buying yeah. at different points in the capital structure and then fighting yeah. over and the scraps. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah hoping yeah. that you your due diligence on what the scraps will be worth is right. Yeah. Yeah, and then and you're going to get your money back plus some. And then they all sort of banded together into like senior bondholders, junior bondholders, equity holders, like, or, and yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I guess to close that out, more importantly is I'm interested to see what happens with the trial with SBF. His, girl, his girlfriend turned on him as well. That was time, the news this time. week. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I think she was actually on trial a couple of days ago. So she, well, she's made well, a not on trial, but she's um, she's now their star witness. If all my watching of Law and Order SVU has taught me anything, it's that people always flip and get 100%. the deal. Yeah, I think every uh, from what I understand, uh, Caroline Ellison, her former girlfriend, and a number of high flying execs from F- FTX have all flipped on him, done mm. di- done deals to. So it's him, him versus. His former buddies Which, who he used to live with. Like they would have all been in on it together. They 100%. were literally well, they don't want to go to jail. living in the Bahamas yeah, in a yeah, house yeah. together. Spending and, billions. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Did you hear that the story that before all this broke and when Sam Bankman-Fried was a multi, multi, multi-billionaire, he paid Tom Brady $50 million to hang out with him for a week. What? <laughs> and like, you that know. so sad. And like, film, no, like they were doing like marketing oh, okay, and stuff. Like okay. Tom Brady was an ambassador, but yeah, like 50 mil for a week in the Bahamas. Pretty good gig if you can get Far it. Out. That's a talent fee. But Bankman Freed also had plans to offer Donald Trump $5 billion not to run for president. Unbelievable. Would you I ta- hope he did. <laughs> <laughs> Would I take that Would if you I was take in Donald Trump's shoes? Yeah. I mean, the president of the United States is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. According to him, anyway, he's a billionaire, anyway. So. No, that's other people that do that. I don't. I'm a very stable genius. A Zempic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can't can't miss these headlines. Can't avoid it, and it, it's an interesting one because a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I spoke about ResMed. Yeah. For people who haven't listened to that episode, uh, ResMed is an Australian and now US maker of sleep apnea masks and machines to help people breathe. Sleep apnea especially affects obese people, and a lot of fundies uh, globally are selling ResMed, and it's peers because they think uh, Ozempic is going to massively decrease the number of obese people. And Ozempic is this sort of quote-unquote miracle weight loss drug. Well, it's a diabetes drug. I think now it's but like... people are saying it's what... Like, well, no. So uh, Ozempic is the diabetes drug. You're right. Yeah. But then Novo Nordisk, the pharmaceutical company that makes it, has made a Exactly the same chemical drug called Wagovi, yeah. which is the weight loss drug. Yeah. Yeah. So just 
marketing. Yes. <laughs> I think it's fair play to say it's a weight loss drug. Like It's being used primarily as a weight loss drug. And like a key way to avoid getting type 2 diabetes is losing weight. Yeah. So it's all wrapped up together. It is. But the headlines at the moment, Ren, are now the flow-on effect of what it means if people are A, losing weight and B... Well, I think I think to like starting with ResMed, that thesis has now creeped into a whole bunch mm. of other areas. Now, like all these investment banks are coming out and saying it's not just makers of sleep apnea devices, but it's all these other categories that are going to be affected by this weight loss drug. And it really started with Walmart. So Walmart's US CEO, John Ferner, came out on the 4th of October, so a bit over a week ago, and said that Walmart is noticing a, quote, slight pullback in overall basket among people taking these weight loss drugs versus the total population. And that's not surprising. No, mm. because it, like, it, it's like restricts your, your appetite. diet. Yeah. yeah, your appetite, yeah. yeah. Also, how do Walmart know which know. of their customers are taking? I was just going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty freaky if they do know that, but maybe they've done some sort of survey and yeah, are yeah, you yeah. taking these medications? True, yeah. And so... What that sort of sparked was a flurry of warnings around food makers. So 4th of October, same day that Walmart came out, uh, Barclays, the British investment bank, put out a warning on PepsiCo, which obviously makes Pepsi, but also uh, Cheetos and Doritos, so like a snack giant, and Mondelez, which is a big snack giant as well, but also a lot of chocolate. They own Cadbury, Toblerone, Oreos. Uh, Barclays warned on both of those companies. Thesis being, if your key buyers of snack food start taking this weight loss drug, they'll buy less snack food. Makes sense, I guess. Morgan Stanley, um, last month, uh, they estimated that 7% of the US population will be taking the drug by 2035 and that the data from people who are taking the drug now, um, 70% of those people visit fast food restaurants less frequently. Again, not surprisingly, but their warning was for the McDonald's and the Yum Foods, which owns KFC and Pizza Hut, like those companies. But Bryce, not every investment bank agrees. RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, Canada, um, came out, I guess, in response to these warnings from Barclays and Morgan Stanley. They said, quote, consumption of indulgent salty snacks that would be considered junk food generally over indexes towards lower income individuals who are unlikely to be these drugs primary users. Yeah, that's I did think about this and had a look at the cost. It ranges from country to country, obviously, and dependent on your Medicare so, uh, or, or private health and blah, blah, blah. So I, I did have a look at this in Australia. Yeah. If you have diabetes or you're taking these drugs for diabetes-related purposes, you can get it on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which is like, what, six bucks a script or something like that? Or maybe 30 bucks a script. Sure. And then if you're a concession card holder, six bucks a script. If you don't, then you're paying hundreds for these drugs. Yeah, so I saw ranges of 130 up to 900 a month. Mm. So like, that's not like a the entire population gets on a Zempic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drug. Yeah. <laughs> now, the I think the interesting thing uh, is right now it's an injection and it's made by one company, Novo Nordisk. There, Eli Lilly has some other drug um, as well, but. There are three pharmaceutical companies, Novo Nordisk, Eli Lilly, and Pfizer. I think they're all in stage three, or some of them are in stage three, some might be stage two two trials of a pill form. And if you think about the difference between injecting yourself and taking a pill, chalk and cheese, 
but also like if there's all this competition perhaps it gets cheaper so like what we're talking about is the cost now yeah yeah of course that might change and to these investment banks credit like they're projecting into the future and thinking about what this could become jp morgan we're really doing a roundup of investment banks here but it, it has been front of mind for all of the big wall street firms they reckon by 2030 so in seven years this glp1 drug market uh is going to be a hundred billion dollar industry um i don't know how big it is today but yeah they reckon it's going to be massive mm. Some some headlines are saying that it's uh, a multitude of greater than the impact of AI that we're going to see. Really, and that Novo Nordisk, you know, the similarities of when Nvidia started last year or started this year came out and smashed results. Like this company could go from four hundred billion to a trillion. Well, this is the annoying. overnight, this and we, is, we can't get it. This is the annoying thing. So we first did. Uh, a Zempic content on the dive our news podcast last year late 2022 like we were so early on this thing I tried to buy it through IG and for some reason IG just blocks me buying all these European stocks and they have this thing where it's like this stock is not suitable for oh, retail wow. investors I've been blocked from a couple of Irish stocks and Nova Nordisk as well well we do work with IG so we'll have to have a chat to them about it yeah we'll have a chat and maybe edit that bit out <laughs> <laughs> but Stake, Superhero, Comsec, make it easy to buy mainland Europe yeah, stocks I know, as well. Yeah, I know. Big opportunity here. So, Ren, we've spoken there about the the f- junk food industry, but but it, it could be bigger than that. Obesity leads to extra healthcare costs in the US economy of, to, to the tune of $1.7 trillion, which is about 6 to 7% of GDP and cost. It is enormous. 40% of Americans are obese. Mm. I think the stat in Australia is pretty bad as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If not higher, I think, per capita. But anyway, 40% of Americans are obese. Sorry to interrupt. I just Googled percentage of Australians obese. Two in three Australians, 67%, were either overweight or obese. 36% overweight, 31% obese. There you go. Um, so uh, people who were on a Zempic consumed 62% less alcohol. And there was also apparently a suppression in the uh, desire to have nicotine. So people, yeah, I've heard, I've less, heard this. Less yeah, smoking, drugs as well. Apparently, drugs. people are like, I think it because it, and this probably is a reason why it's a bit of a concern. I think it affects your dopamine. Yes, and so you know how like uh, addictive behavior like triggers a dopamine response. I think it regulates that. Uh, regulating your dopamine with medication is potentially not great long term. Yeah. Just a thought. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but if you think about the impact of that and what it means for less alcohol on mental health, on just disease, like just the, the flow, the second order effect of all of this is quite large. Yeah. Um, With the it, clear caveat that there's been no long-term health no, studies on the effect no. of the drug itself. But even if you think about all the diet companies, Jenny Craig, I can't think of another one, but like, yeah, or like all those fast meals and that sort of stuff huge impact if people are like yeah i, I don't think, need to do this i think uh weight watchers which is also listed has embraced it and they're like trying to incorporate it into what they're doing there you go which is what i think you'd probably see a lot of these companies do yeah gyms start dishing it out the back door sort of thing <laughs> and a bit ridiculously um another investment bank jeffries uh, have come out to say that uh, they believe united airlines would save $80 million on fuel costs if every passenger dropped 10 pounds mm. on average. So now that is that is like <laughs> thinking about second order effects of something. Yes. Yeah. Oh, people are losing weight. I'll invest in airline stocks. I know. It's yeah. a bit ridiculous. But anyway, the point to this is that 
It's in the headlines. It's a bit of a phenomenon at the moment that is having real real impact. I think the point to this is just pay attention to but, this. Yeah. And I think in Australia, we're kind of insulated from it because it has it's not as widespread here. Like, I feel like the US and Europe are maybe a little bit more advanced in terms of the amount of people using these drugs. But if this is like the hype that's coming out of America and Europe, just be aware that this is a story coming down yeah. the pike. Yeah. And it, yeah. Could be the next NVIDIA. I'm calling it. It'll be a trillion dollar company next year. Bold, I mean, bold prediction. I don't think that's that bold. 1.5 trillion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bryce, let's take a, a quick break here. And then after the break, I want to talk about companies that already are trillion dollar companies, but may not be for much longer. Hey, Equity Mates, it's Ren just dropping in to let you know about an interview we just released with Saurabh Mukherjee. God, it's got me excited about investing in India. I know. You can have companies compound at 20-25% for 20, 30, 40 years. But that $100 million aspiration turned into a billion dollars next to no time. Make the most of what I think would be the defining opportunity in investing for the next decade or so. Do not miss it. It's live in the Equity Mates investing podcast feed right now. All right, Bryce, well, uh, we have covered a lot so far, a lot going on in the news, but I would say nothing bigger in the financial world than the antitrust season we've entered. And for people not American, antitrust is really competition law because all of the big tech companies, well, a lot of the big tech companies seem to be embroiled in antitrust disputes. The US government has taken Google to court. Epic Games is suing Apple in Australia. That's still ongoing, but it's also uh, going likely going to the Supreme Court in the US. Uh, Amazon has been taken to court by the US government as well. Microsoft is still in an antitrust dispute over their Activision Blizzard acquisition. It's antitrust season. It is antitrust season. Will anything come of it though? And, and lawyers are going to line their pockets. So yes, things are going to come of it. Things have already come of it. Um, you know, like we've seen more regulation in Europe. We've seen Apple forced to change their charging port. Big, yes, big shift. Big deal. <laughs> but I think, All right, let me rephrase it. Will anything meaningful happen? <laughs> well, I think what we want to talk about today is the chance of Google and Amazon being broken up yeah. because... That's a live possibility at the moment. To take a step back, the Amazon one I, I think is the most interesting because Lena Khan, who's the chair of the Federal Trade Commission over in the US, she built her reputation as like an anti-Amazon campaigner. So when she was at Yale Law School, she wrote a essay, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, so famous in competition law circles that my dad sent it to me. She was a law student. She wrote this thing it reached like Australian lawyers wow. and I didn't read it, <laughs> but I know about it. Then she was a professor, I think at Columbia and built on that reputation as like an anti-Amazon campaigner. Biden gets elected president, appoints her chair of the FTC. Clear signal that Amazon is in the crosshairs. Yeah. Her department along with 17 US states have now sued Amazon. And one of the remedies they're asking for is to break Amazon. So what would that look like? It'd look like we would then have the ability to sack off investing in the e-commerce and invest in AWS. AWS, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Which would be awesome. If you think about like Amazon breaking it into its parts and like the idea is that they're too much of a monopoly, they have too much market power and so we need to break them up. Yeah, you maybe split Amazon Web Services into a separate business, Amazon Retail. A lot of the analysis that I've 
read says the advertising business gets split into a separate business. I don't know how that works outside of the retail context. Like you kind of need the retail platform for the advertising business to be valuable. But anyway, maybe you split some of like the third party warehousing and logistics Logistics, and it becomes like a FedEx or a toll or something. And so maybe you split it into like three or four different businesses. Similar story with Google. Google is this massive conglomerate that you could probably break up into Google Cloud, into a separate businesses. You maybe add like Google Drive and all that with that. Search. Search and the ads business, I think probably has to stay together as one. I don't think they would be looking at it like a, this has to stay together for it to make sense for, from Google's business point of view. Isn't the whole point to be like... I don't know. <laughs> isn't the whole point that ads and Google together is what half the issue is? Okay, well, anyway, let me just let me just do what how I would break it up and then you critique it. So I said uh, cloud services and Google Drive, search, ads, and maps, um, Android and mobile hardware. So um, all the mobile business goes into its own thing. And then YouTube. Yep. And then, may, then they've got like all those other bets and stuff. Just chuck them anywhere. AI, all their AI stuff. and well, I think a lot of that would fit within the separate things. Like they yeah, would have AI in and Android. Pieces. They would have AI yeah, in search. Yeah. They would have AI in cloud. As an investor, the natural reaction when companies that you invest in go to court and the possibility of a trillion dollar company being broken up into its constituent parts, the natural reaction is to be worried. Like history tells us otherwise. Though. Well, that's that's what we want to talk about today. History tells us otherwise. Yeah, it could actually be the best thing to happen to us as investors. It could be. It might not be, but it could be. Standard Oil is a great example, which we've spoken about a hundred times on the show. Have we spoken about it a hundred times? Yeah, definitely. We've done an episode on it. Yeah, when we were doing this, is the book that killed Equity Mates Book Club. Because every uh, month, yes, yes, every yes, month yes. we would choose one. We'd take it in terms to choose a book. We'd read it. We'd talk about it on the show. You chose the Standard Oil book about yeah. JD Rockefeller. Yeah, and then you didn't read it. It was like seven hundred. It's a story pages. as old as time. It's a story as old as time. I know it. And all the momentum fell out after that. For people unfamiliar, Standard Oil was the massive oil refining monopoly. It was a horizontal monopoly. Like if you were refining oil in America at the turn of the twentieth century. It was a Standard Oil refinery. Yeah. In 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil needed to be broken up. Uh, it was split into 34 companies. Some of those companies you might be familiar with today, Chevron, yep. Exxon, yep. Phillips, uh, a few others. The estimate is, so when you're a massive monopoly, you have a lot of market power. The people that work for you, are like the executives at the company, compensated very well. Things are good for the business. As investors, you often find that there's a conglomerate discount that like uh, because there's so many parts to the business, often because it's so complex to analyze, but also because like the value of some of these parts of the business are hard to realize that it just trades at a discount. Yeah, It's estimated that the value of the combined total of Standard Oil's entities after it was split into 34 separate companies grew five times. And as a shareholder, you'd have shares at the split Oh, yeah, all of them. We should make that clear, shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the good part if you're an existing shareholder. Yeah. So if we took Standard Oil, you own one share of Standard Oil, that splits into 34 companies. Yeah. You own shit, your shares, shares in, all. in all 34. Yes. Yeah. 
which is why we say it could be as exciting opportunity as an investor if you're already an investor in Google and Amazon and they do split, you're going to have access to the AWS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And all of a sudden, Amazon trades on like a retail, yeah, online retailer yeah, 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 multiple. Yeah, Maybe like... AWS is maybe SaaS tech. I, I think, you know, like a Walmart or a, you know, like a, a big retailer would trade on less than one-time sales, maybe half-time sales. If you split Amazon Web Services out and yeah. it becomes its own high-growing, highly profitable web services business, forget trading on half-time sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going through like the roof. Ten-time sales. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other classic one that you can often look at is the Bell Telephone Monopoly, so mm-hmm. AT&T. It got split up in the 80s into seven independent companies and then two other like operating entities. I don't have the numbers. It's It's hard to find the numbers, but like... You know, uh, it became some of these companies became part of Verizon, uh, back into ANT, like CenturyLink, all these different big companies now. Like I don't really have a lot to say because I couldn't <laughs> find the numbers. <laughs> the point is, though, that there are there are examples in history where one might look at it and go, on breaking up Standard Oil, I'm invested in that. This is not going to be a great outcome but the value that has been since delivered to shareholders of those subsequent companies has been pretty significant. Yeah, so we had a look at Google and Amazon and looked at the numbers and tried to get an understanding of like what would happen if they were broken up. So starting with Google, an analysis by CNBC suggested that Google Search, YouTube and Google Cloud alone accounted for all of Google's market cap. If you split them out and you know they traded at similar multiples to peers in those separate markets you know youtube trading like netflix cloud trading like i don't know another web services company i don't know if there's any that split out so maybe you put it on like a SaaS multiple or Mm. something anyway cnbc suggested that those three parts of the business made up all of google's market cap which means you're getting all of their other businesses plus 120 billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet for For free. free yeah that's interesting that is and then similarly with Amazon, we found some analysis from uh, Loop Ventures. Um, they did a sum of the parts analysis uh, and they reckoned that Amazon Web Services, if it was its own business, and the advertising business uh, would be worth $700 billion and $500 billion respectively. So $1.2 trillion. Current Amazon market cap is $1.34 trillion. I've seen a lot of commentary around the valuation expectations for AWS or potential for AWS if it were to be split and it's in the trillion dollar company stage. Yeah. And so I think that's all a long way of us getting to this point, which is that whilst you might be worried that Google and Amazon are in court, if they get broken up, don't be super worried. And I think we can see that the market isn't super worried. Alphabet, which owns Google, up 31% in the past six months. Love it. Amazon up 30% in the past six months. Yeah. So my big takeaway at the end of this then though, Ren, is what is the likelihood? Because this isn't the first time that they've really had this come across their desk and lawyer up and we're going to take down big tech. Well, I mean, when Lena Khan took over the job uh, at the FTC, they were in the middle of a case against Meta and they were trying to break up Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Look what happened. Nothing. So the probability is more interesting to me and we'll be following this rather closely. 
but they're in the thick of it now. What you didn't say there is you think it's very unlikely. I do. Yeah, I, yeah. I tend to agree. Yeah, they always find a way. There'll be some uh, like uh, it'll be like what happened in Europe or what happened with that. There'll be there'll be there'll be small changes. They'll I don't think there'll be anything wholesale. I think you know AT and T example is instructive here. The, the US government didn't break up AT&T on its first attempt. There were heaps of lawsuits. AT&T fought them all. And then eventually the US government got the breakup. Um, these things take time. Public pressure will build. Legal theories will develop. Yeah. So watch this space. Uh, I'm a shareholder of both, transparently. I'm a shareholder of both individually. Alphabet's one of my bigger holdings. But also most people... Uh, shareholders through ETFs and I would hazard a guess that these days everyone is a shareholder in their superannuation as well you would hazard a guess it would be a pretty through the international shares component <laughs> yeah it would be a pretty um, I was about to say irresponsible super fund to not have any exposure to mega cap US tech yeah I'm going to say that would be irresponsible if they weren't fair call well let's use that as a, <laughs> as, a, as a point to take a quick break and then on the other side Ren we're picking up your mentorship with Andrew Page. You have one new message. Hey, equity mates. Really interesting episode with Glenn James on investing for kids. I think maybe what wasn't mentioned, especially with the informal trusts, is that sometimes the reason for your choice around which tax file number to use can be a bit more nuanced than just looking at the numbers. Um, putting it on the miners' tax file number obviously means you do need to tell them about the investment. And at a certain point, I guess you could argue that the income from it should be theirs to do with what they wish, especially if they're working when they're teenagers and it starts to impact what tax rate they pay because um, it's showing up on their own tax return. Um, in my family, I've got two little boys and I want to control when we gift them the money and also how the returns are going to be reinvested until then. I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be yet. And I also don't want them to know about it and feel like they're set up and they don't need to start saving for themselves. So for that reason, I'm pretty happy to just use the trust designation as a label and I wear the impact of that on my tax return in the meantime. Both options are allowed. I looked up the case studies on the ETO website and it's all there to have a look at. Thanks again, guys. I learned heaps from the show. So thanks for everything you do. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, Bryce, we are back and we are about to get into my conversation with Andrew Page. Uh, you and I have both had mentors this year. Uh, we're on this journey of continued learning. I feel like that's the biggest thing that we've learned through doing this podcast is the best investors are just constantly learning. And we both found mentors, Andrew Page for me from strawman.com. You've been speaking to Henry Jennings uh, from Marcus today, although he's been on a bit of a European jaunt. He has, but back now though. Okay. Yeah, uh, he's we'll... back. I have spoken to him, so um, stay tuned in the coming weeks. All right, we look yeah. forward to hearing that soon. But what I wanted to speak to Andrew about was recently on the podcast, I've brought a number of 
companies. I guess I've been doing my homework. Um, and Andrew's particularly focused on smaller companies. And so I've been trying to find some smaller companies. We've been working on like a simple valuation technique. So I've been trying to put that into practice and just find some interesting ideas. And over the last few weeks on the podcast, I've spoken to you about ResMed, which we touched on earlier, but then also uh, LGI Limited and John Ling's group. And so I wanted to speak to Andrew about them. Nice. Were these interesting companies? What did I miss? <laughs> had I done the maths right? And you'll hear that at one point I, in this conversation, I hadn't done the maths right. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so yeah, just want to continue learning, want to continue keep be- getting better and Thankfully, Andrew and Henry have agreed to help us yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let's so, get stuck in. Yeah, here's my conversation with Andrew. So, well, since we last spoke, my homework was to go away and find a few companies. I think like that's sort of the direction that we've been going in this whole time, you know, like establish the investing philosophy, back of the envelope valuation method, but like where the rubber hits the road is actually finding companies. Um, and so there's a few that I've spoken about on the podcast over the past few weeks, which I'm sure you're a religious listener to. But yeah. <laughs> um, I do where I can, absolutely. This this is the trouble with the modern era, right? There's like 4,000 really great podcasts out there and it's just impossible to stay across them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought I would bring some of them to you today and get your thoughts. And one that I spoke about a few weeks ago, and I feel like since every fundy in Australia has written about or spoken about is ResMed. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I feel like that was a real uh, a real example where I used your back of the envelope valuation method and I was like, if I'm right here, this looks like a big opportunity. And the whole story that's come out, well, you know, the, the story that we're watching play out around Novo Nordisk, they're miracle weight loss drugs, American and European fund managers freaking out about what the effect that's going to have on a whole bunch of companies that benefit from rising levels of obesity. If the dire predictions aren't to be believed and if some of the forecasts around, you know, I've pulled some numbers when I was talking about it before, 16 million people in the world have CPAP devices. ResMed is one of the few dominant players in that space. The estimates are 900 million people suffer from chronic or obstructive sleep apnea. So I think I said on the show, you know, even if Azempic passes all the wildest possible dreams and everyone's hot and fit and, you know, the number of people with sleep apnea halves, that's still a massive growth potential from 16 million to 450 million. And so then we ran through some of the numbers and talked about historic growth rate and different growth rates going forward. And it looked pretty compelling, but I'm sure you've also looked at ResMed because everyone's been looking at it. So what are your thoughts on it? Um, it really is the stock to talk about at the moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, which, the, the, which gets me worried, to be honest. You know, I, see, I was, I'm pretty favorably disposed towards the current setup. The, the only thing that's made me pause for thought more than anything is the fact that every single fund manager in Australia likes it. Yeah, like, I know. Wait yeah. a sec. <laughs> I'm more comfortable being a contrarian than, than knowing that everyone else happens to like it as well. Yeah. I mean, look, I guess the first thing you've got to, you've got to start off with some context here. ResMed is hands down one of the best companies on the ASX. In terms of historical track record, like if you could go back in time, this is one of the companies you would, you had to have like a 30 stock portfolio. This would, this would definitely make it in there, mm-hmm. right? So it's just compounded, compounded its growth at insane rates for a long, long time. It's a very large company now, but it's still, even in the last five years, its earnings have doubled essentially on yeah. a per share basis, like 15% compound growth. 
sales have been growing really well also. So it's sort of like, okay, fantastic company. Prior to these latest shenanigans, and when I say shenanigans, like the share price is down 30%. Like it's in, crazy. In yeah. small cap land, eh, it's a Tuesday, right? But but for, for a big blue chip yeah. kind of multi-billion dollar company, it's like, whoa, that's, that's quite a lot. The thing that I always struggle with is that two things can be true at the same time. In the sense that it, it can be true that this has an impact and yet shares are still good value, right? Like it, it, it's not a black and white thing. It's like, oh, this is gonna, this is nothing. Don't worry about it. Or yes, this is this is the end of ResMed as, as we know it. And this is now a company in terminal decline. So I, I tend to think, I think I'm going to agree with you and everyone else here. It wouldn't be a nil impact. And also you've got to look to the second, third or fourth order kind of effects where it's sort of like, Maybe as MPIC and the current, you know, these are injectables. You know, no one likes putting needles in themselves yeah, and stuff, yeah. but science moves fast, right? So what if this is just a, a tablet that you take once a week? Well, that's not a what if. There are three pharmaceutical companies, Novo Nordisk being one of them, Pfizer another, and then I, can't, I think Eli Lilly the third. They've all right. got uh, stage two or stage three clinical trials. It's not a reality yet, but like if you're making an investment case, assume it's going to happen that there'll be a tablet form of this. Right. Like that's the thing. And, and this, so again, back to some first principles, the way you value a company is like, at least in theory, the way you conceptualize it is that the value is the sum of all future cash flows, just discounted back to, to today's money. And so it might be that this is completely untouched for 10 years and then, and then everything, the world changes where it's like a, a one cent pill that not only works incredibly well, but has zero side effects. So I'm just painting out the worst worst case scenario. So like, I was like a true miracle pill. It yeah. could be a miracle pill, right? Like, you know, we're in the age of AI and the rest. I don't know. I mean, the trouble is when you go down that sort of route, you you kind of, well, you, you kind of undermine any investment argument, right? Because who knows what the world's going to look like in 10 yeah, or, or 20 years time. Then you just, you just load up on pharma. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so it's sort of... So what am I, I'm really all over the place here. Uh, look, my bottom line is I think potentially has an impact. Maybe that impact is more exaggerated potentially as, as things continue to evolve in this space. But I don't think it takes a really high quality company and makes it into something that is people are talking about existential threats. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't. Well, I took your back of the envelope uh, valuation method. Oh, yeah. So I looked at the US stock. So share price, when I looked at it, was 149. It's it's come off a little bit from there even. I think it's 144 in the US at the moment. Um, but using the 149 share price, earnings per share last year, $6.44. Over the past five years, those earnings per share have grown at 13% a year okay. uh, on average. So I said, like, what's the worst case scenario here? Like, what if everyone is right and this is just becomes a really slow growing company, stops selling as many machines and just start selling masks? And I said, what if it grows at just inflation? So 5% a year for the next five years. I love, I love the inflation forecast, by I, the way. That's, I, <laughs> that's aggressive. I love it. Higher for longer, Andrew. Yeah, Higher for I'm longer. with you. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> yeah, maybe I inflated that a little bit. But 5% a year for the next five years gives us uh, $8.22 in earnings at a 15 price to earnings. So even after coming off 30%, it's at 24 price to earnings. So let's say that multiple comes right back in. There's no growth in this stock. People just sort of see it as a something that can hopefully pay some dividends as it fizzles into nothing. So yep. trading at 15, that's still $164 share price. So that's still up from where it is today. 
And, you know, when we're doing the sort of back of the envelope math, the margin of safety, it's like, that's interesting. Uh, I'm following along here at home. I want to make sure. One, two, three, four, five. 822 times 15. Yeah. Uh, Have I got that right? That's $123. Are we we dealing US dollars here? Oh, yeah. I have got that wrong. Luckily, I can edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I pause, like, oh, shit, I got a different number. What have I done wrong? What have I done here? Maybe I've done. Oh, you know what I've done? I've done. Tw- I've done a twenty multiple. Not ah, a okay, multiple. okay. There okay. you go. There you okay. go. So I've um, got one hundred and twenty-three. Yeah. So I guess. Uh, I mean, twenty PA is a little less conservative for a company like this. Probably not. You know, oh, even. Well, look. Look, I, I would say I would put it to you that prior to these uh, ructions, uh, Resmed was on a P of thirty-six. Right. Yeah, yeah, and if you and compare it to you know like some of these other health tech companies, like Cochlear is on like fifty PA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think twenty is ambitious. I mean, here's the thing, right? It's like as we discussed. I mean, we could argue all day whether twenty is appropriate or not. I don't know. I mean, certainly no one's going to accuse you of being overly aggressive. If you'd said, well, what about a B? It could be on forty at this point in time. I'm like, well, maybe, but maybe not. I don't want to be super reliant on it. You're actually expecting even now the PE is twenty five after a thirty percent fall. And you're calling for a further compression in that. So I think I think that's actually reasonable. As I said before, we we can we don't have to like plan our flag on, on one particular hill here. We can say, well, try, let's try 15. Let's try 3% growth. Let's try 15% growth on a P of four. Like, let's muck around and let's see where the skew of things kind of lie. And I think when you do that exercise, as you have, clearly it's it's sort of like it feels as though the spread is towards the positive. So if that's the sort of the worst case scenario, and you know, like obviously there are worst case scenarios than that, but if that's sort of my lower band, then then it's like, all right, well, what what is the sort of bullish case? And I don't think it will start growing faster than it has grown in the past five years. Like, you know, it's a 20 billion US dollar company. Hard to grow. I mean, if you extrapolate that out, it becomes bigger than the global economy after exactly, a point. Exactly. So, yeah. so I said, I said, what if it maintains that same growth rate for the next five years? Yep. So 13% growth for the next five years takes us from $6.44 earnings per share to $11.87. So then if you say $11.87 and let's say if it continues to grow at that rate, mm-hmm. this fear in this moment around Ozempic will have waned because it has continued to grow through the Ozempic challenge. And so then you say, okay, well, maybe the price to earnings recovers from where it is now at 24 and gets back to 30. And so then you say a 30 PE on a 11.87 earnings, you're above $300 a share. So like if everything goes right and this moment of fear is overblown, you can see a path to sort of doubling in five years Yep. on the upside, bull yep. case. I love it. I love it. I mean, it gives you a lay of the land. Now, the other thing, and we talked about it as well, is that you will revise this because tomorrow you'll have information you didn't have today and the day after you will. So it's just like stupid and pig-headed to go, no, 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 that is my forecast. It shall ever remain thus. No, mm-hmm. things, will, things will change and you, and you can alter it. But where we sit at this exact point in time, I think that's a really reasonable kind of spread. Now, if it was, if we sort of happened, we did those bull case, best case, bear case kind of scenarios, and the current share price was right in the middle, it starts to feel like a bit more of a coin flip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so then it's kind of like, uh, you, 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 you might be able to probabilistically weight it and say, well, yes, but I feel as though the bull case is really likely and the bear case isn't. So then, okay, I'm fine. You, you can do all of that kind of stuff. But assuming you sort of assign equal probabilities to all of that, then it's sort of like, hmm, you know, maybe maybe about fair value is where you sort of come out. Either, yeah, that is not not crazy cheap, but not crazy expensive either. You know, you could do far worse on, and Buffett loves to talk about you know a great company at a fair price rather than a, a fair company at a great price. So there's there's definitely nothing wrong with that. But we don't. It seems as on this exercise we get where actually we don't have to Im- imagine accelerating growth or even higher mm. multiples to get there. And in fact, we can have pretty conservative estimates, and we simply get this positive skew. That's that's the love. That's the asymmetry that that I really kind of look for. Yeah. And we know we're yeah, going to be wrong on a bunch of stuff, right? I, I, I would say this. So one one thing just to put out there, which I, I feel as though we're the frog in the boiling water here where we just haven't noticed things getting hotter because it's happened so gradually. Before we had this chat, I had a quick squeeze at ResMed. And you go back uh, 10 years and the average annual PE ratio at that time was about 20. Now, this was a company that had actually achieved pretty good growth through to that point. And as we know, as history has demonstrated, it actually really continued to grow incredibly mm. strongly. But I think that's a feature that is of, across markets in the sense that we have seen some incredible returns. In the case of ResMed, definitely driven by improving fundamentals and profit growth, 100%, 100%. But there has been multiple expansion yeah, at the yeah. same time. And yeah. we are now in a world, right? With infl- Let's say inflation stays at 5%. I can tell you that interest rates are going to remain elevated and under that environment. Yeah. So I'm not saying I don't want to be silly enough to put a macro forecast out there, but that is something to bear in mind. Where I think we look at certain PEs and go, "Oh, PE of 20 is so cheap." And like, well, in the 10 year context, it is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But in, in, the in a 50 term, year context, it's like yeah. not really. So it's just you know, it's it's <laughs> investing is hard. <laughs> I guess is yeah, the takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we and everyone else in Australia has probably spoken enough about ResMed. There were two other companies that I haven't done the valuation work on, but I came across, thought they were interesting for different reasons, and I'm sure you've come across them because it feels like you've come across most companies in your in your journey. So I thought I would, uh, I guess, float them and get your thoughts on them. Yeah. So the two companies are LGI Limited, $200 million market cap. So that's probably more more your size and then John Ling group 1.8 billion so i don't know if you've you've got stronger thoughts on either of them where you want to start i'll uh, say this alex so i never heard of lgi before oh so, nice so there thank you, go. you. And, 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 and just a peek behind the when you when we joined the call together i was busily typing away what i was actually typing was an email to the um Managing director of LGI saying, "Hey, do you want to come and speak to our members at Strawman?" Because oh, like, epic! Okay, yeah, I, 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 I just from what I can see, it looks like it listed it late last year. Last year, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that one then, because that's that's cool that uh, I, in my small way, have added some value. to 100%. you. I'm not, just, I'm not just taking your time. <laughs> no, no, man, this is this is really great stuff, and I can see. Well, I'll let you give me the pitch, but I I can see what drew you to it. Yeah, well, I, I think for people who are new to the stock, uh, it was founded in 2009, as Andrew said, listed last year. The founder is still the CEO. You love to see that. Love it. 200 million market cap. And the business is all about uh, making landfills more sustainable and using the biogas that is created. So Australia has over a thousand landfills. As much as we don't love them, they're a fact of life. 
Australians also suck at recycling. In a past life, Andrew, I worked in waste and sustainability. So oh, that's right. I remember you mentioned, yeah. I've seen it firsthand. I actually set up Australia's first zero waste to landfill supermarket. But to do that, it required me in the bin rooms sorting rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't scale well, does it? We did it for a week to prove it could be done, yep. but it didn't continue after I left that bin room. So <laughs> What a shame. This is a whole world that's close to my heart. And you know, as food and other organic matter breaks down in landfills, it releases methane. Methane has about 30 times the global warming potential of CO2. And rather than releasing that gas, there's technology that allows you to capture that gas. You can flare it, which doesn't release as much into the atmosphere. Um, and you can get paid emissions reduction funds credits for that. But probably the more exciting thing is you can capture that gas uh, and turn it into uh, green energy, essentially. And so that's what LGI do. They've got 26 biogas sites, 17 they flare, they've got eight biogas to power and then a couple of other ones. And so that's sort of the company today. They don't own or operate the landfills. They operate this, I guess, technology in partnership with like the cleanaways and the Veolias and the Ramondas of the world, the big waste companies. Which I assume love it, right? Because they knock on the door and say, hey, can we build this plant here? And it's like, it's going to generate all these carbon credits and, you know, we'll, I... I you might know I haven't looked at it, but they obviously pay some lease or some revenue share. So, so there's a there's a revenue opportunity for you, and you get to look, you get to present your green credentials. So this yeah, is all exactly. upside, right? Like, who's yeah, going to say no? Bugger off! We don't want you to do that. Yeah, it's like there'd be there'd be some upfront capital cost, I assume, but then it's like you will make money from this, and we will make money from this. And your sustainability report will look a lot better when you put it on the market. License to operate. Yep. Social license to operate is a big deal, actually. So yeah, increasingly definitely. so. Yeah. And so it's an interesting company. They said that of the landfills they've looked at, they reckon there's at least 200 that are suitable for their technology and they're still assessing more. So obviously, they've got to convince the companies that operate those landfills, but they see growth runway there. Yep. And then the financial results, and I'll stop talking after this, uh, were interesting. $30 million in revenue, up 27% year on year, and $6.5 million in profit, up 35% year on year. You know, came across the company, found it interesting. There was a path to growth there. You know, the, the numbers, it's profitable, it's growing. I was like, this, this is an interesting company. What do you think? I agree. So I did the same kind of thing. I mean, I think it's always, it sounds pretty simplistic, but you've got to ask, like, what, what value are you creating here? Right? Like, are you making pet rocks that may have some faddish value? Or is there something like genuinely, are you solving a problem that, that people are going to demand? And it feels like that that's definitely the case. So I like that. I like that it's profitable. That's nice. I like that it's founder led. PE is 31. That's not too onerous for a company that has d decent growth potential. It's easy to sort of get the off-the-cuff reaction. The real work starts now. And, yeah, and yeah, what yeah. I would want to do, I would want to get some kind of – so it's a capital-intensive business, right? So you've got to build these power plants and these boxes. It looks like it's pretty modular. Maybe it's easier to roll out. But I want to get some kind of – what's the payback on that? There's no point if it's like, well, once we've built everything, we make really – the economics are really great, but it just costs a fortune to build it. So that, yeah, 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 yeah. That's worth, that's worth knowing about. Um, there doesn't look like there's much cash on the books. So they've been heavily, but they use, they raise money from the float. They paid down their debt. So the balance sheet much stronger. But if you're going to go into 10 other different land sites and you, well, yeah. it's going to, it's going to require upfront capital, which is fine. But what, what's that sort of look like? The thing with carbon credits too, is they're insanely political. 
And they're insanely BS in a lot of areas too. Like just we pay farmers not to do things that they might not yeah, have done anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like that's dumb. To, to not chop, not clear land that wasn't going to be cleared and all of that what? stuff. What? Yeah, yeah. Dumb. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but this is not dumb. This is, this is a legitimate use of it. But I guess what I'm saying is a risk factor is and one to get your head around is like what are those carbon credit schemes how do they look how are they evolving what might change what because that that would would change the economics of the entire model and what you would hope but we're talking about politicians designing schemes so you got to take it with a grain of salt what you would hope is that they tighten standards and reward truly carbon reducing project 100 percent. and this is what people do not understand is how much of a low-hanging fruit biogas is like it's just you know Anyway, so I'm interested. I'm going to reach out to the CEO. I'm going to chat nice. and we'll, we'll see. So I, 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 but I would ask those questions. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess the other thing that I have no idea about, but definitely made me think was if they prove the model, how hard is it for a CleanAway or a Veolia or a Ramondas to do this themselves? I imagine that once you're on site, it's just difficult and costly to up a facility and put another one down so there's there's probably some lock-in value once you yeah yeah of the existing ones yeah maybe so maybe there's a bit of a there's a first mover advantage if you can you really refine your tech in terms of the build out the logistics of putting it all together and getting them on sites really rapidly you can but yeah at a point this is an industry that will be low growth i imagine or reducing margin i mean look at this like the i had to double check this the revenue was 30 million the profit was 6.4 million. That's a 20% net margin. Yeah, pretty good, isn't it? Now, if there's one thing capitalists are good at, they spot margin, they go, oh, well, I'll, I'll do it for 15%. And that's still in a great business, right? So you do drive towards marginal cost of production. You've got to remember, Andrew, there's one thing that the waste industry is good at. It's taking profits because no one else wants to play in the waste industry. That, that is very true too. <laughs> yes, that is very true too. But I love it. I love it. I think it's, I think it's a really good, really good one to dig into. And just for all the listeners out there, for God's sake, don't run out and buy it just because we've spoken favorably about this. Yeah, all yeah, kinds yeah, of skeletons yeah, yeah. in the closet that we don't know here. So just, but but I, I love the thinking. I love the thinking. We'll appropriately disclaim the start of this conversation. You have to. You can't say it enough. You really can't yeah, say it. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I, I lean into it these days too because just sort of like I just inevitably get an email in three months' time saying you said this was great and it's down thirty percent. Yeah, like, I mean. Oh. The- the benefit for Bryce and I is that we're also very public about our mistakes and stuff like that. So we definitely don't position ourselves as experts. Yeah. And we're here to learn. You can borrow an idea. You can't borrow the conviction, right? In, in, in a few months time or years, something changes and like, well, this conversation is very dated at that point. All of the conversations you have about Bitcoin at some point might come back to haunt you. <laughs> well, I've already had the very first conversation I had with you guys has come back to bite me because I was like wailing you were off on Bitcoin. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do they say? None as zealous as the recently converted. Yeah, that, that is so true. <laughs> God, that is so true. So very quickly, but John's Ling Group was another company that I came across. First of all, I assume you've come across it before. I have these guys. I've never deep dived into it, but yeah, building repair work for insurers. Well, again, a bit of a climate theme, I guess. Um, yep. but, but the interesting thing here was, I was just having a look at the financials. So very quickly, they've got two businesses, the building and restoration services for insurance companies. That's about 90% of their revenue. And then they've got commercial building and construction, and that's about another 10%. Of, uh, that's about 10% of their revenue. So much smaller. Um, the past five years, the company's grown massively from yep. 287 million in revenue to 1.2 billion. And last financial year, there was some good 
Growth numbers, revenue up 43%. So a good story, but looking forward, the company's projecting things are going to go backwards. So 1.22 billion in revenue F23 to 1.14 billion in F24. And the big reason for that is that the commercial construction business is going to fall by about two thirds. So that smaller business, about 10% of their revenue, Delivered 370 million last year. It's going to go to 140 this year. Not great. The insurance business, they expect to go from 850 mil to a bill. So they expect the insurance business to keep growing. Right. But here's the thing, Andrew, that made it potentially interesting and I want to get your thoughts on. Even though their revenue is going to go backwards, their profit is actually going to go up because the commercial construction business is a bit of a dog. It lost $19 million last year. The rest of the business made $138 million in profit, but because of that loss, the final profit was $119 mil. So reducing the revenue from the commercial construction business hurts the top line, but it actually helps the bottom line. And they, they expect the profit to go from $119 to $128. And so for me, that was an interesting one where it was like, there's some like internal changes in the business that will actually make it a better, more profitable business. But from a top line perspective, it looks like things aren't going to go so well. I, I love that. I love it. So the saying that's coming to mind is uh, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. Um, and the third, the third part of that is cash is king. It, actually, another company we've spoken about recently cut a whole bunch of revenue from their, from the, from their operations because it just was really poor margin, negative margin. Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Profits are what matters and cash profits are what really matter, you know? So it's sort of like, I think that is, I wouldn't see that as a bad thing. I also think too, that you have to go into businesses, eyes wide open too often, particularly the institutions, they're, they're incentivized for very short time frames. And let's say that even outside of that margin difference amongst the, the segments that you're going to have a, a tough year. Anyone who's ever worked in commercial construction for any length of time is like, well, dude, it's a super cyclical industry. What's 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 your issue here? There is a mm. massive difference between a business like, I don't know, like a David Jones, to be unfair, which is maybe, you know, maybe in a structural decline versus something that is just having a bad year because it's a cyclical industry. And guess what? It's not a great time for the industry. In fact, I think you get some very interesting setups there where you see a company that comes out with definitively bad news. It's not great, but it's not because there's any, the the long-term earning capacity of the business has materially changed. It's just like, oh, turns out the economy's in a recession and no one buys our particular widgets in a recession. That sucks, but we're well capitalized. We're completely fine. At some point, the rainbow will come out and everyone will be happy and they'll start buying our stuff again. And that is that is a really, really attractive setup for those that are far-sighted because you get earnings fall because earnings fall in that scenario, but the multiple compressors as well. So out the other side, you get a recovery in earnings and a PE expansion. It's like, it's a leveraged gain. So I think that other than, I know it's been a bit of a favorite amongst a lot of the small cap analysts, not so small cap anymore, but of small cap analysts I've followed, which is always a nice little signal. They've definitely delivered. There's definitely, in my humble opinion, a tailwind, right? Like I feel as though extreme weather events are more likely than not. Call me crazy. Yeah. The thing that I don't know is, and this is where the, the rubber hits the road, I suppose, is where's the competitive edge they have in this space? I, I do know they make a lot of mention of really strong relationships they have with insurers and stuff, and that's probably the thing to point to. Yeah, that's, 
That's what Bryce and I were talking about. It's like if you're a national insurer, if you're like Amy or IAG or any of the big ones, um, you want a, someone who has a national footprint. You just want one contractor that you deal with. So like I guess it would be hard to be a new competitor competing away because you couldn't compete away like we're just going to focus on southeast queensland and dominate that market because suncorp probably just want one restoration partner for the country so maybe there's some sort of scale advantages and then maybe there's a level of like you know entrenched contracts and stuff like that but i i do i do take your point that like construction is inherently like low barriers to entry competitive game yeah and i guess the the other thing that i i don't know off the top of my head maybe you do is the nature of the workforce are they subcontracting this out to other builders or do they have their own full-time workers that they draw upon do you know what the situation is there i don't i don't i know i saw that they operate under like 24 different brands but i don't know how each of those brands function and yeah it'd be an interesting it'd be an interesting one only only because you know the the pros and cons on each side, but subcontracting everything out means you've got a very flexible workforce effectively. Mm. But then they have much more pricing power because they can say, well, we've got a lot of work on. So if you want us to do stuff for you, we're going to charge it. You know, so it, it depends on how you want to look at it and where the industry is kind of at. But mate, there's nothing I can fault you on in terms of why you would have seen these and thought that they are worthy of further scrutiny. Good historical growth, good economics, it seems, good tailwinds, not unreasonable prices. Like, yeah, what's, what's not to like? And I think, I think for me, that's sort of where I am. It's like building a list of companies that I want to look at further. And, you know, like looking at this one, it's trading on uh, 35 price to earnings. So like, even if that revenue and profit mix changes, it's not cheap. It's also been really volatile over the last few years. Yeah. For me, it's just like, can I find interesting setups to research further? And I guess it sounds like I'm on the right track. Well, here's the other thing, right? So it's down 30% from the high it hit last year. So the price, price, the pendulum of price swings too far in both directions. Things get mm. too expensive and then they get sort of too cheap. So it's sort of like I, this is where I get not to be too anchored on market prices, but I think that's I'm more maybe it's just more of a psychological thing with me, but I'm more interested to look at it now that the share price is down close to thirty percent from the high. Yeah, and yet where, where's the problem with this picture? What am I what am I missing here? Right. Mm, mm. Um, it's look unless there's something that we're we're missing and this is where the due diligence comes in that you know it would strike me as that it was probably just a case of things the market getting too exuberant a year and a half ago and that's yeah. and that's what's changed like well good i i would i much prefer to buy things on sale i guess like you know to the point around it's being volatile like it's down 30% from its highs but it's up what 20% in the past 3 months jumping around just to hammer this point again you know cuz it always bears repeating which is like good like Yes, please. Can I have more of that? Like, what do yeah, I want? Yeah, a yeah. perfectly straight. It always trades at fair value. I'd like, I will just, I will by definition get the market average. I need things to be a bit crazy from time to time. But the other thing is, is that it's easy to say that in anticipation of buying. It's like, oh, isn't it great? It has so volatile. I'll buy it now. And when it's down, it's like, well, yep, yeah, do. But just also understand that that reality doesn't change after you buy in the mm-hmm. sense that you'll buy. And I can guarantee you, you're not picking the exact bottom tick here. It'll, it'll, it could easily drop another 20%. And then it yeah, could ride, yeah, ride, yeah. then you feel like a genius and it could rally 50%. It just, just stand back, right? Like, is the price, is this something I want to own? Yes or no? Uh, is the price sensible? Yes or no? That's it. I just keep it simple. Well, I think that's a good place to, to leave it there. We'll try and be sensible and um, I guess, you know, the, the challenge is to, to keep looking and seeing what's out there. But I appreciate you, you 
talking me through these ones. I, I appreciate uh, you giving me a new company to dig into. I look, look forward to doing that. All right, Bryce. Well, that was my conversation with Andrew. Looking forward to getting Henry back on the show. Yes. I feel like you've been taking it easy while he's been overseas. <laughs> oh, man, I've had my feet up. Oh, you bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe next week we'll hear from you and Henry so I can put my feet up. Yes, well, stay tuned. You'll hear from Henry next week. Now, before we go, one thing you can do to help us out. Uh, we have a survey. Uh, the, the link is in our show notes. We want to get feedback on Equitymates investing, the, this podcast, what you like, what you want to hear more of, what we could do better. If you could help us out, it shouldn't take more than five minutes. We would really appreciate your thoughts, your feedback, and your suggestions to help us keep building this show, keep going on our investing journey together. So yeah, would love it if you could help. Let's do it. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have physicians in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.